Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. Joining the show today is Paul Begg, author of Jack the Ripper, The Facts, The Definitive History, and co-author with John Bennett of CSI Whitechapel, The Forgotten Victims, and The Complete and Essential Jack the Ripper, as well as co-editor of the Jack the Ripper A to Z. And Paul and I are here today to welcome Dr. Drew Gray. Drew is a senior lecturer in the history of crime at the University of Northampton and has published three books and several articles on crime and violence in the 18th and 19th century London, including London Shadows and most recently Jack and the Thames Torso Murders. Earlier this month, Dr. Gray spoke at the October meeting of the Whitechapel Society, which was held in conjunction with the evening speaker event for the East End Conference in a talk he entitled Adventures in Ripperology. And we welcome Drew to the show today. Hi, hi, Jonathan. Hi, Paul. Hi, Drew. And uh, so, Drew, how has your adventure in Ripperology been so far? I think it's been mostly positive. Um, it's certainly been interesting. Um, I think that, um, for example, having attended the Whitechapel Society, the, the East End Conference of the last couple of years and um, the Whitechapel Society, which I've now joined since the since my talk um, earlier in the month, um, I, I found all of the people, uh, almost without exception, really welcoming, um, really interesting and interested. And, and so on that side of things, my direct contact with people has been really good. Um, I think that um, I was I had trepidations about the reception of the book that I wrote with Andy Wise on the on 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 Jack and the Thames Torso murders. Uh, I had trepidations for s- several reasons, and I think that some of the stuff that um, at least was reported to me because I don't tend to dip into the forums online. Some of the stuff that reported to me gave me some cause for concern, but at the same time. Um, I kind of expected that and think that some of it's quite reasonable. So, you know, I think overall, I'd say my um, adventures in ripperology so far have been, yeah, pretty positive. Um, not not necessarily unexpected and, um, and certainly haven't put me off. Now, how did you first become interested in Victorian crime, the courts, policing and the Whitechapel murders? Okay, so you could probably break that up into lots of different things. Um, When I was an undergraduate, um, I I studied under uh, Professor Peter King. Um, um, Peter is an exceptional historian of crime of the 18th century. And, you know, it's one of those classic moments. We might all go back to, why did you get interested in history? It's probably your teacher at school. Um, Peter was certainly somebody who inspired me to take an interest in in um, historical crime. And I started in the 18th century and I continued through the 18th century specialising in the history of magistrates. So very, very far away from murder, I was interested in petty crime, you know, petty assault, petty theft, that kind of thing. Um, and I am still very interested in that. And my first book out of my doctoral thesis was all about the city of london magistrate courts in the early eight in the late 18th century it kind of is a natural progression in my teaching to start thinking about the 19th century as well as the 18th century 
arguably in history, in the history of crime circles, the 18th century is more studied than the 19th. I think that's got quite a lot to do with the American and Canadian historians who obviously kind of feel an affinity with with British and American history in the 18th century. Um, and then quite simply, I needed to apply for a job at Northampton and I needed a third year option to teach. I needed to go to them with something that was exciting, that would attract students. Um, and I thought the Ripper would be an interesting area to work from um, because pretty much anybody, when I said, oh, I'm a historian of crime, they'd go, oh, who's Jack the Ripper? So I kind of spend 20 minutes going, well, actually, I'm not interested in Jack the Ripper. I'm interested in magistrates. And they, their faces would glaze over. And I realized I, I kind of should have stuck with, <laughs> with where I was. Yeah, actually answer the question, Drew. So, um, but I'm, as a historian, I'm, I am interested in crime and punishment, but I'm really interested in the state and the way that the state deals with people who are, um, you might call the, the, the weaker members of its society. So for me, crime is a way to look at working class lives, to, to look at poverty, oppression, and a whole range of other things. And that's what I designed my module around to ask a whole series of questions. So the hook is Jack the Ripper, but then it opens up into um, a whole range of discussions and themes around poverty, prostitution, gender, politics, immigration, all sorts of things. And and. I would probably also say that as a historian, as I've developed, my passion for history is, is, is also focused around the fact that it can tell us such a lot about the society that we live in at the moment. And, you know, if you look at Whitechapel in the 1880s, um, and I look at my current city in London where, you know, I was born and bred, uh, in the, in the 21st century, I see so many parallels that I, I want to explore these sorts of things. And I think that's, that's kind of where I've got to. I'm curious um, real briefly about your um, class that you teach. How many, mm. how, how long have you been teaching this class? Best part of a decade, Jonathan, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, um, it's changed quite a lot in that time. I mean, partly because at Northampton, we've changed our delivery system quite a lot. So it used to be the case that I would give a lecture on, you know, um, housing conditions in 19th century London and then the students would look at some source material and then we'd have a discussion and they do some reading around it in a very sort of structured seminar thing now I mean with Paul's help and Charlotte Mallinson at the University of Huddersfield um, we were able to try and create a slightly more dynamic um, student experience which involves you know little outside broadcasts um, little podcast lectures and discussion points um, so that I don't give lectures anymore I kind of come in and and we explore things and it kind of goes in the direction that they want in many respects which is much more dynamic much more interesting means you know whilst I have a lesson plan you never know where the sort of these are usually three and a half hour sessions you never really know where they're going to go which is quite exciting and how many students um, tend to take your class each? Is it taught a semester basis or is it a full year? Uh, uh, no, we take it's a it's a twelve week course. Um, it's taught in a yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's taught in a term semester. Yeah, so um, they're third year students, so it's a final year of their their degree over here. Um, and I'll probably have anything from 
um, 18 to two dozen, probably at the, the highest point a few years ago when we had quite large student numbers. Um, there's a whole discussion to be have about falling student numbers in, in the UK. But um, I probably had about 40 and I, then I split them into two classes. So at any one time, I'm probably teaching a group of a dozen to 20 students. And um, on average, are they coming to the Whitechapel murder case completely new or, or, or do you ever have students who are familiar with places like Casebook or JTR forums or have read books on the case or anything like that? Yeah, well, the, the reality is pretty much none of them are, are familiar with, um, the case, with Casebook, but I put Casebook link up as a, as a, I mean, I warn them that, you know, there's a lot of sites, there's a lot of information on the internet about Jack the Ripper and not all of it is very good, but Casebook is. So they can use Casebook as a, as a site. I don't suggest necessarily they get involved in the forums because I'm, I'm not sure that online forums are, always healthy for young people so i don't i don't stop them but um i don't flag it up either um but no they don't tend to have, they don't tend to have done that they that most of them will have seen a film or a documentary um obviously all of them have heard of paul um <laughs> um they some of them will have read a book and, and hopefully by the time they do my module i ask them to read a book in the previous summer so they should have read something. And to be honest, I would I would always point them towards um, Paul's work, towards Don Rumbelow's work. Um, you know, one of those kind of more respected versions, um, you no know, histories of the case. Um, and a few years ago, I had a student who told me that um, she was a uh, a descendant of one of the Ripper victims and at the graduation that year and I met when I met her family um, they confirmed that they believed that they were related to Annie Chapman I've never explored this to um, to sort of trick its veracity um, but I had no particular reason to doubt what they said I thought that was really interesting um, I mean what, what are the chances in some respects um, but it's a course that, that actually is flagged up by the university in our sort of um, promotional material for studying history at Northampton. Um, it's something that attracts students to the course. It's not the only thing, of course, but um, Jack the Ripper is a, is a subject that they are interested in taking. And alongside history students, I also have criminology students who come along to take it. And they, they bring a slightly different perspective, as you might imagine. Well, let's get into um, mm. our discussion proper about uh, the covering some of the topics you brought up in your talk. Um, Colin Wilson is credited with first using the term ripperologist in 1972, and he kind of was using it in a tongue-in-cheek way of while, while referring to the readers of Michael Harrison's book Clarence, which was about Prince Eddie and the Royal Conspiracy Theory. But anymore, when Paul might uh, differ with some of this, but in my opinion, I think that when it's used appropriately, ripperologists is just simply meant to identify those who have reached an expert level of knowledge about the Whitechapel murders. 
Now, the A to Z states that the term is increasingly associated with cranks and charlatans. And I'm kind of thinking that that's probably no more true in this day and age, right? So maybe you could, um, I know this might be repeating some of what you had uh, talked about um, at the Whitechapel Society, but maybe if you could just give your take on what you believe a ripperologist in ripperology really is. Mm. Well, I suppose first of all, I'd say that um, I'm... This arose out of me saying, I think, to Paul in an email that I'm obviously I'm not a ripperologist, and Paul saying, "Kyle, yes, you are." <laughs> um, which you are, <laughs> which I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think Paul, your definition was that you, know, you said to me, "Well, you know, you've written about Jack the Ripper, you teach about Jack the Ripper, and now you've written a, a book about Jack the Ripper. That kind of makes you a ripperologist." Yes, well, definition of the term as it is in the dictionary uh, and the, in, the the definition that Colin intended uh, was of somebody who is interested in and uh, researches and in, in, in the early 70s when he coined the term, uh, it was primarily to do with uh, theorizing or suspectology as some people insist on calling it today. Uh, and so that's what it's all about. It's not about other things, in my view. Hmm. Okay. Well, I mean, I, for me, I think that uh, uh, whether it's a, an, an Oxford dictionary definition or um, uh, a definition created within um, this particular genre, and for me, ripperology is a is a sub genre, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean it's a it's a subgenre of true crime. Um, so true crime exists as a um, a perfectly legitimate um, discipline uh, or genre of writing, and I kind of would see ripperology as as being part of that. Um, I think that for me, probably my resistance to being called a ripperologist doesn't come of saying, well, no, I don't do any of the things that make me a ripperologist, but more from the fact, and I said this at the talk, that I do other things. So, you know, my most of my work is not based on Jack the Ripper, um, but I'm, I'm clear that's also true of someone like yourself, Paul. So, you know, it's it, 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 I, I didn't wish for it to define me. So I wouldn't want to be on a television program being, being having ripperologist underneath my my name um and that's not to be disparaging to people who would want to have ripperologist next to their name but i would want historian of crime or historian yeah. um because that's more accurate well, i would prefer that as well yeah exactly because you yeah exactly um so it's a bit labels are interesting um uh, and it's how labels are used so um People throw things around, and it's the reasons that they why, – why do they want to do that? Uh, I think that's kind of a, a legitimate question to ask. Um, you know. Well, uh, did, go on. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, but I believe that I heard you say that you, you, um, you, your uh, definition of a ripperologist – is pretty orthodox in that it would only encompass suspectology 
or well yeah i mean i've got the oxford english dictionary's definition <laughs> of ripperology stuck in front of me here and it's i'll just read it out it says study of or investigation into the crimes of jack the ripper especially in order to uncover the identity of the murderer also the accumulation of fact and interpretation surrounding the murders oh. now when colin defined the term he was in it back in the 70s ripperology was basically a bit of fun mystery mm. about the identity of the murderer and so uh if you read richard whittington egan's uh, book uh you'll see that he sort of runs out of steam around the mid 90s which is when researching things other than theorizing about the suspect uh, came to the fore mm -hmm. and that's what the bit added on uh, in this right. definition the study of the accumulation of fact and interpretation mm -hmm. that's what i sort of think of as being the history side of jack the ripper the theorizing is part of that but it's it's not the the the, the main the main purpose anymore and, 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 that, and i i think one of the main misconceptions about ripperology and maybe it's just because the the term has evolved but is the perception that it is narrowly focused on suspectology the who done it of the mm -hmm. case and and uh, and this is and evident today to where we're perceived the the victims are perceived as mere objects or specimens you know yeah court uh, they're just corpses that ripperologists pick over looking for clues to the who done it well of course the, the the thing that you have to remember with that is that any murder the victims are of uh you know not really prime importance because the object of any crime investigation is to uncover the murderer and to bring them to justice the victim is important for any clues that they can provide to who the criminal was but once that has happened then the the, the victims are not of uh, primary interest is following up the clues that are provided by the victims, by the crime scene, by investigation and so on. So even in real life, unfortunately, the victim is very often uh, little more than an object. And even in television programs, which uh, may or may not reflect the reality, you see the detectives going into the mortuary where the body's lie, laying out on the on the slab and they're discussing it as if it were not a person they're interested in in what the corpse provides uh, as by way of evidence and, and in terms of a serial killer usually the victim and their killer have only just met so the amount that there's no the amount of clues that are provided by the victim are are extremely small, so it's 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 a bit unfair in a way when when you are interested in the perpetrator of the crime to say well you're not paying proper attention to the victims. I think all of that 
all of that I think is is absolutely fair. Um, I, I think that the difficulty that ripperology has is that, however, you, wherever you take your definitions from, um, that's not necessarily the perception that's seen by people who are outside of that field of interest. Um, um, and presentation, unfortunately, in in the modern world, is 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 most of it. it the presentation of things is in many respects far more important wrongly in my opinion than than the reality of things so i'm sure, yeah. I'm sure that's true and it applies to uh, imagine train spotters quite yeah <laughs> it applies to but I, I think that's the that's part of the difficulty um so most of my um in, where I've got involved in, in, in discussions around this, you know, I'm, I'm often at pains to say that it's a legitimate thing, ripperology, um, however you want to define it. Um, of course, there will be people within it who are acting in ways which we might not seem to be legitimate, but you'll find them in every single walk of life. Um, you know, so that's not, un it's not unusual that something that interests so many people and has interested so many people for so long is going to attract elements which you probably wouldn't want to be associated with or some of us might not want to be associated with or who take things in directions that we do not like that doesn't undermine the basis of the interest in the case in the first place but i think yeah. that ripperology becomes a term which can mean something that perhaps it it, it isn't Right. Um, well, I'm going back to the second um, part of the Oxford English Dictionary definition, <laughs> and while while anyone who spends any time discussing the case, quote unquote, they'll quickly discover that it involves a deep dive into Victorian British politics, policing, social conditions. Um, commercial and residential geography of the East End and genealogy for sure um, not only with the residents uh, of the East End in the 19th century but people as far as a field as Ireland, Wales, Russia the US um, and the, the, maybe that's I'm saying that because that's the type of people and elements the th those are the types of researchers and the elements of the case that I tend to gravitate towards and you know in the first few years of the show um, of my podcast I received a lot of complaints about uh, for example like uh, a three hour two part episode I did on the life of Mary Jane Kelly that featured uh, Chris Scott amongst our guests and and we got involved in this lengthy discussion of the census records as it pertained to Dorset Street and Miller's Court and and the you know genealogy of Welsh coal miners and like mm. people who would tune in believing that we'd be discussing the details of of this brutal murder wouldn't have any idea what we were talking about, you know? And I think that kind of illustrates the gulf between the public's perception of what a ripperologist is versus 
what many quote unquote ripperologists actually do. Well, and I mean, go ahead. I mean, I'd say, well, John Hall has talked at the um, East End Conference this year about um, you know origins of Mary Kelly's where where and where in Wales she might have come from, and looking at the. Uh, I can't, I'm not going to even try and pronounce the place because, um, but it was kind of the, the mispronunciation of Carnarvon and, um, mm-hmm. um, that, that kind of detailed, interesting research, um, is valuable. And, and for me, that's the sort of thing you get when you get into, uh, um, uh, when there are good, um, historians, because that's what they are, whether they're, they're pro- pro- whether they're professional historians, academic historians, or amateur historians, it doesn't really matter. They're historians, they're, they're doing the research, looking at these particular elements that have come out of the case, which, yeah, in some respects, that's that might not be what Joe Public wants to tune in and listen to or watch, but actually, it's valuable social history. And we've even had people come on the message boards who are researching their family's genealogy and, and you know, an ancestor just happened to live, um, you know, on Wentworth Street or something like that uh, in the East End. And, you know, they do a Google search of their ancestor and it op- yeah. up pops um, s- some discussion about, um, you know, from casebook.org. Well, I, I get that not infrequently from my police magistrate blog. I get people who email me and say, uh, my great, great, great uncle or my, you know, I have this relative or whatever who was in Whitechapel or was, uh, was a policeman or was all those kind of things around the, ni- the late 19th century. You know, can you help me? I mean, a lot of it is things I can't help with except to direct them towards the sorts of information that they might find useful because the the genealogy thing is a much much bigger thing than it used to be because we've got such a lot of internet resources to help people search i mean i've traced my family tree in various different directions right back to the 1600s now uh it's a lot easier to do that from your armchair than it ever used to be so i think it's and i think one of the things that's fascinating about the Whitechapel case is that um it does touch so many people not directly to the case itself but to the surrounding situation of, of people living and growing up in London in the late 19th century and the dyspora of different um, peoples that come to London from, you know, from Eastern Europe or from Ireland or from the rest of the UK, you know, that actually um, it's a way into social... I mean, for me, I would argue you can do that social history in lots of periods of, of British um, uh, and other countries' histories, but perhaps it's more... It's easier to do in the late, in the second half of the 19th century and into the 20th century because we have much better record keeping, mm-hmm. particularly for something like crime. You, you don't get those records in the 18th century in the same richness as you get them um, in the 19th century. One of the things that got me interested uh, at a very early stage in, in ripperology was reading... Uh, again, about the Mary Kelly case, but with, with the lady who uh, uh, said that she'd seen and spoken to Kelly shortly, or when Kelly was already dead, actually, but in all probability, but she obviously got the wrong day. Anyway, that's by the way. She said that she was on her way to the milk shop to get some milk for her husband's 
breakfast. Now, we have milk um, rarely these days, I suppose, delivered in bottles to your doorstep or bought in a plastic bottle from the supermarket. And I, in my naivety at the time, wondered what a milk shop actually was. It was obvious that it was a shop that sold milk, but that led into all sorts of things about the freshness of milk and, in fact, how you got fresh milk in London. Yeah. And uh, the fact was that people kept cows in cellars and other mm-hmm. places of terrible conditions uh, in order to get fresh milk for uh, London residents because there was no process at that stage uh, to, to preserve it. Uh, and when there was, it was polluted with all kinds of rubbish, which again takes you off into another area of mm. Victorian society of, uh, of, of uh, food adulteration. So all of a sudden, by just trying to resolve a little question uh, that was born of my ignorance, I was taken on a journey into all sorts of areas, which I actually wrote an article about for one of the Ripper <laughs> magazines. Well, these are the things I think that continue to fascinate me and continue to fascinate my students about about late 19th century London, which, you know, because of the Ripper, they're interested and then they'll go beyond it. So, you know, if, if you're aware and familiar with Lee Jackson's Dirty Old London book, yeah. um, you know, you know, that's fascinating. Just thinking about just <laughs> how they got rid of things that we probably wouldn't say in polite company, you know, um, on a podcast. But, you know, just. The, the basics of that, you know, the the idea of, you know, why there are so few ladies' toilets in London, because um, compared to men's toilets in London, you know, mm. pol- polite ladies didn't want to use public toilets, so they didn't build them. Um, just stuff like that, I think, is really interesting. And then when I was doing the research for, for um, the Thames Torso book, I mean, one of the interesting things was, which I kind of knew some of this stuff. I'm a Londoner, but thinking about the tube and thinking about the the tram networks um, and the overground trains and how people got, just thinking about the geography of how people got around um, and spending a lot of time stumping around the place. Um, I'm a historian who likes to walk around the areas where I'm into, always have been, the areas where, where I'm researching. And I think those sort of things, again, you kind of try to put yourselves in, try to walk in the shoes of people in the past and understand what their lives meant. So for giving one example of, of overcrowding, I realized after a while that I was trying to tell my students about overcrowded conditions in the East End, but they have no real concept of that. It's very difficult. You can you can use someone like Jack London. You can, you can, you know, uh, Margaret Harkness's books. You can, you know, you can, you can use the sources, but physicality is quite difficult to understand. So I got, I got them to all shove up into one section of a classroom, you know. So I put sort of in like a dozen of them in a space that would be equivalent to the sort of space that a family might be occupying in a in an East End um, basement or wherever, and. You know, I tried to say, wait, well, you know, come on, guys, you know, imagine being in here sort of 24-7 and pissing in the corner, excuse my French, and um, eating here and potentially working here and all that kind of stuff. And that's quite powerful when people can can have some kind of physical connection to to history. At the, um, 
the flip side of that, uh, of how ripperology can lead into all these various different types of study is that, um, as Paul and I have discussed before, anyone can come to ripperology from a whole different variety of ways, not just true crime. And you don't yeah. need a degree. Um, so, so, for instance, in my case, I became, I'm a British, uh, literature and poetry, um, student, uh, academically. And so, um, I didn't, I was interested in true crime as a child, but then I kind of got out of it. But then when, um, it was through the study of the romantics and, um, the Shelleys and, Mary Wollstonecraft and Godwin and then learning, um, about their son and, and, um, Percy, Percy Shelley, uh, and Mary Shelley's son, Percy, um, and that, uh, piece of, uh, one of the torso victims was tossed over mm. the wall of the Shelley estate that, um, and, and then also, and with that also being the pol- the working class politics that was um, prevalent, you know, the leftist uh, activism of Percy Shelley and Mary Shelley and her parents, you know, all that stuff. It kind of all leads to the East End. Um, and but then another person could come to the Ripper case because they saw from hell, right? Um, or, you know, so there's, there's this melting pot of individuals that make up ripperology. Um, that is something that, um, and when you get into talking about academics, there, there is this, this, um, and Paul can address this probably more eloquently than I can, but there is this, there, there are two different worlds operating here. I think it's probably the same world. Uh, it's just that expectations are slightly different. It's people who come into subject like, like uh, I, I think a good example is one that uh, many years ago I was uh, uh, involved. I, my very first book, which was published in 1979, was about people who disappear. Uh, and I was more interested in actual cases of people who who disappeared, uh, but uh, obviously it involved things like the Bermuda Triangle and and uh, other such stories that uh, d- didn't happen. And to some extent, uh, I was brushing shoulders with people who were interested in flying saucers, which was also an ology, a ufology. Uh, And there were people there who were very serious and pointing out that what you were dealing with really was aerial phenomena and what it was that people were seeing. And they were were quite happy that uh, 95% or whatever it was of sightings were of uh, things that uh, were acceptable ordinary phenomena, but maybe seen under unusual conditions or whatever and their argument was it's the five percent that 
is what is interesting. It's the 5% that seems to defy explanation. And then, of course, there are a whole bunch of people who are really interested in ufology and would go along to uh, the the dinners and so forth, uh, dressed up as as monsters from outer space and little green men and uh, almost sort of Trekkie-type costumes. And some of those people were the ones who were very seriously interested in that 5%. I was more of a five percentist. That's what interested me as well. And I wasn't. <laughs> I didn't didn't go around dressed up as uh, as Mr. Spock or anything. Uh, and what that little bit is about is that there are differences. There are people who are interested in the serious side of things, and there are people who are interested in the. Uh, the, the social side of things and all sorts of different interests in terms of, of Ripper studies. Oh, uh, I think, yeah, sorry, if we go bring on. the academic in on top of that, you know, you're, you're more the 5% interest area. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. And I was going to say, I agree with you that, 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 that it's the same, it's the same thing. Um, with different levels of different levels of interest or particular levels of interest. I was really struck, for example, at the East End Conference, particularly this year, because I went down on the Friday night and I went for the the, the photography walking tour. I'm a, I'm a keen photographer and um, and I also like walking around White Chapel. So the idea of putting those two things together was fascinating and it was really, really enlightening. Um, but also, you're really aware that people, you know, people are all getting there together and they're meeting with their friends and then their friends that they correspond with online. But they also get together at certain times of the year. And I think that's a really good thing. I, I, you know, I'm a football fan. You know, there are people I see every other weekend because I go to football with them um, and we all come from different backgrounds. And I think those people coming together with with a shared interest is a is a is generally speaking very positive um i also want to say that academics do that as well an academic conference can be very similar to the non-academic east end conference in the sense that there are lots of papers by people telling us about interesting things in the research that they've done but then there's also going to the pub um chatting over coffee networking catching up with people that you don't see very often i mean all of those things are the same um you might some people some people might argue that there's a level of there's a a higher brow of discussion going on at academic conferences and at than at um, something like the east end conference i'm not necessarily sure that's true but um not that we are doing the same thing sorry (laughs) I said not yeah. that I've witnessed. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, uh, I think fundamentally people are fascinated in the things that they are particularly interested in and they like sharing that with other people. I mean, you know, when I completed my um, PhD viva, I mean, I think my, my the external examiner said, you know, congratulations, you're now Dr. Gray, or you will now be Dr. Gray. Um, I hope that wasn't too much of a trauma for you. Um, and of course, the reality is no one else is ever going to be as interested in your thesis as we've been um, in talking about it for two and a half hours. Um, because when you're a, uh, when you study a particular topic, unless there are other people who are into that topic, the deeper you get into it, the less uninformed people are likely to be interested in it because you're 
being very, very, um, you know, you've, you've, that level of detail is not something that the wider public want. And with reprology, they're not, most people are not interested. Um, they, they take a superficial view of it be, because that's the way it's presented in the media to them. Um, yeah, when, even, when, even quite good documentaries are, generally speaking, pretty superficial. Yes, you use uh, a verb, verbal shorthand together as well to describe things because you know the other person knows what you're talking about. Uh-huh. But I know that when uh, when Martin Fido and I and or Keith and I would talk about Jack the Ripper, we were talking about Jack the Ripper on a level that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily have understood simply because we would you'd throw in something like well of course joe blogs so and so and they would immediately know hmm. uh you know what role he played and what it was he said and how he behaved and so you just take that as red and like it's a discreet it's a, it's a discreet field of interest like pipe man like if we were to bring up pipe man huh. or broad-shouldered yeah, sure. man or you know um the Batty Street Lodger, things like that. You know, most most people who've just seen a documentary would have no idea what you're talking about. And I think that um, one of the things, you know, going back to the beginning, when I was dipping my feet into starting my adventure with Ripperology, you know, one of the things that probably I'm nervous, was nervous about, so I'm still nervous about, is that when I address a, a group like the Whitechapel Society, they know more than me about most of the detail pretty much when i give a lecture about um the history of crime in the 18th or 19th century or when i talk about police magistrates uh, i talk about magistrates in history even to an academic audience i know more than they do i'm the expert in the room and actually you know when i talk to the whitechapel society at the east end conference um i'm not the expert in the room there are dozens of experts in the room and some of them are more expert than i am have you read a book by William Rubenstein about um, subjects like, or the people who are interested in subjects like Jack the Ripper and the Shakespeare authorship question and things of that nature? I haven't, no. Uh, his book, the title of his book, I had on the tip of my tongue uh, about two seconds ago, and now I can't recall it. But he was a professor at uh, Aberystwyth University, and he looked at this, and he tended and was also a member of the Whitechapel Society, and he said basically exactly the same as you, and that uh, most of the people that he encountered, their, the depth of their knowledge on, that, on their particular subject area was was profound and he said he wished that um, you know his students were as knowledgeable about uh, his subject <laughs> as, uh, as as the ripperologists were and uh, it's it's an int- he's he has an interesting take because he explains at the beginning of the book that the things that would interest professional historians which he lists mm-hmm. uh, are radically different from things that interest what we uh, don't like calling amateur historians but uh there, there's a, a a sort of narrow more refined areas of interest and he listed a number of things that are just at random from some of the academic journals that he had at that time and it was sort of uh you know the monetary situation of <laughs> imports 
into London docks via Rotterdam between 1863 and 1873 or you know <laughs> now I've got a stack of journals on my on the shelves behind me and I'm sure if I dug some of those out you know um, I would be able to find you some very obscure things that people have studied and of course people study those for PhDs and increasingly if you want to be if you want to do a PhD these days you want to do something which which hasn't been done <laughs> you're going yeah. to be getting into the areas of things which are which are, are really uh, 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 topics Obscure. which are quite spe- <laughs> which are quite small and and very very specific and that's and that's inevitable the more i mean you know the more knowledge we have about things um the less there is to find out i mean there'll always be new things to find out and, and i'm always saying to students Sometimes you can look at the same question, but from a different angle. And sometimes that angle is because a new source has become available. Something like the digital panopticon, um, which you may or may not have encountered, is a fascinating tool to trace criminal lives, for example. I now use that in my teaching, and I'm getting students to to do undergraduate and postgraduate research using that as a tool because they ask different questions. They ask the same question differently and completely new questions. Uh, I mean... When I started doing my PhD, the, the old Bailey wasn't available online as a fully searchable tool. Now I can have statistics. You know, my, the, my next book, which I hope to come out in May next year on 18th century murders, I can produce a, a table of murders in London in the 1780s in seconds, which I wouldn't have been able to do before. It would have taken me weeks and weeks sitting in an archive plowing through that information. Um, so you can do history differently because of things that are available to you. And, and I think that's also a prompt for you know for genealogy and as i said earlier um and for taking research into a sub- subject like the ripper further which well, is why cool. yeah sorry go ahead. no which, which is why i am i have been keen you know i've been keen since well i met you paul a few years ago in um and you came up to northampton which is why i've been keen to deliver a a, a conference which yes. brings academics and, for want of a better word, ripperologists and amateurs and whatever together to w- with other sorts of people um, who perhaps are none of those things um, to discuss some of these areas. Um, because I think it, it not only does it lend an area of legitimacy, maybe an area of legitimacy that ripperology doesn't require or, or want, but that I think would help to redress some of the some of some of the negativity that is out there well, however unfairly I think there is a a requirement for uh, legitimacy as you put it um because one of the things about ripperology of course that isn't readily uh, recognized is how we have rescued a lot of things from oblivion. Yeah. Um, a good example, of course, would be the photograph of Annie Chapman in life, mm. uh, the wedding photograph. Now, I don't know the family, but um, it's. I know that in my own family, uh, photographs of my sort of my mother's time and, and her parents' time that that we've got, my daughter wouldn't show any interest in whatsoever because they would be people who were completely unknown to her. Mm. And so those photographs 
get thrown out or you see them turn up in and market stalls and family photographs for sale and, and things like that. Now, we have, whilst the, the chances are of those things survive being still in existence, uh, we've tried to rescue those of policemen and of other people uh, who were involved in the case. And there are a lot of photographs that, that have come to light, along with... Uh, with other materials, other documents, uh, all much more, all much more valuable than mysterious shawls. Oh, absolutely, yes. <laughs> I mean, but then again, you see, I mean, the the shawl thing is something that wasn't created by ripperologists. That no. would it, that that's, and the interesting thing there, and the one thing that tends to get overlooked all the time, is that it was, however, ripperologists who were the ones who, the clever people who talked about things that went way over my head, uh, who, who picked out the fault with the, with, with the, uh, the DNA. Mm. So it, but it's, that, that was done on the message boards. That's which, right. Which, okay, which, so, yeah. which is where we get to this apprehension, I guess, would be a way to call of academics or popular historians. Now, Hallie Rubenhold um, did join both Casebook and JTR forums when she was researching her book um, and um, asked questions, not a lot, but it, you know, initially she engaged um, with uh, the Ripperology community on the message boards to ask ask questions. But um, in your talk, uh, at the East End Conference, you discussed the academic's approach to writing and publishing and the peer review process that academics have to go through. And as you noted, Ripper Studies has its own peer review. Hmm. And um, and given the nature of things, you know, we review outsider quote-unquote books as well, as you yourself have seen firsthand. The, now, the major platform that this takes place on is the message boards. Um, the message boards are Ripperology's water cooler. And we the debate stage, laboratory, classroom, that's the message boards. And it has been this way for nearly two decades. So um, over the past few years, JTR Forums has become the dominant place where real-time book reviews and criticisms occur. And I get the sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, that message board ripperology isn't considered by you as maybe as legitimate as some other publications like Ripperologist magazine or some of the more serious books like Paul Beggs or Neil Bell's. Um, and this goes back to kind of the shawl thing too, because... Um, and I and you can talk about the message boards, uh, but I was going to point out, uh, Paul, with the shawl deal, it's it's the failure uh, of um, quote unquote outsiders or some insiders, for that matter, to use to utilize the resources of the message boards that that creates this pothole that we see writers and academics and historians falling into time and time again. Um, it happened with Win West and Davies. 
Um, and with Russell Edwards and Jari Luhalin, they just blindly ignored the problems and the discrepancies found mm-hmm. about the about Amos Simpson, not only Amos Simpson, but also the testing of the Edo shawl. So, um, so it's so it's almost like you know. To us, I feel sometimes as ripperologists with uh, books like yours and Hallie's and Wins and then the shawl mess that to a ripperologist, it's really no different than claiming Vincent Van, someone coming on claiming Vincent Van Gogh was Jack the Ripper. Um, uh, except for the clout that an academic or a popular historian would yield, you know, with their book. Mm. So the problems that ripperologists see in someone's book are, is just hugely magnified by that clout. Um, so I really do think that the failure with historians and academics to engage with the researchers on the message boards is a big problem. And if, and if we don't ever overcome that, then it's going to remain a big problem. Well, uh, uh, okay, so uh, there's quite a lot in that, Jonathan. Yeah, um, I, I ran <laughs> let's, see, let's see if I can unpack some, some of that stuff, which, um, I mean, I, peer review, yes, the, 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 I, I suggested that Ripperology underwent its own kind of peer review, which I think it does. But peer review in academia, you know, you'll send something off, it will be considered far too long, quite honestly. Um, probably it'll sit on somebody's computer or their desk and they won't look at it and then they will. And then you get a considered response, which is anonymous. And it's a very, it can be quite harsh. It can be very friendly. Usually it's very constructive, um, but it's certainly very well considered. Um, and it comes back to you, you know, at, at a timely, at a timely point for you to, to make adjustments or, or to refute the, the suggestions that have been made. It's not instant in the way that um, the message boards, from the little that I've looked at them, can can be. Um, the other thing is, and, I, and this is probably even going to counter my argument, because you know, I, if you blind peer review something, obviously I blind peer review for other people's work, um, you don't know who it is that submitted the piece of work that you're looking at and they don't know who's reviewing it so you'll get reviewer one and reviewer two and the you can often work out who the reviewer is or you can make a educated guess at it but it's meant to be a anonymous process um so this kind of counts counter the thing i'm going to say next which is that on the message boards you might get paul which you might say that's paul beg it may well not be paul beg who is commenting on something and you kind of go I might kind of go, Paul Begg, he knows what he's talking about. He's somebody I respect. Therefore, if he says X, it must be true, or at least it's worth thinking about. And then you get somebody who's got a made-up name, you know, calling themselves Jack the Ripper for sake of argument, um, who you don't know who that is. Um, you know nothing about that person and what their academic or their any other credibility that they might have. So why should I be taking any notice of what they say? It might be perfectly sound but it might equally be wrong vindictive whatever so i think the, the difficulty of message boards that's one difficulty of them the other one is the fact that you know it's 
it takes a tremendous amount of time to engage with them. So um, you know, I don't have a lot of time in my day to engage with anything other than the day job and doing my research and having a social life and all those kinds of things. And so I haven't got hours of my week that I can give away to staying on a stream on on the forums. And that's what you need to do. You need to be seeing how it unfolds. Whereas if somebody sent you a document saying, these are all the things that are wrong with your draft, then you can respond to that. It's more considered. Now, I I don't know how we get over that, but I don't think academics, academics don't work in that environment, generally speaking. Um, we work in a, in a different environment. If you take someone like Hallie, because I did speak to her in the summer before she published her book, um, and she was going into reforms and she was finding some people really helpful. And she talked positively about people and how helpful they've been. But then that seemed to change. Um, it seemed to change that she found that people were being critical. Now, whether she then just didn't like the criticism um, and therefore disengaged with it or chose to see those people as um, vindictive or malicious or whatever, um, unfairly or otherwise, I don't know because I'm not her. But that was how she experienced it. So it became a situation where she didn't want to enter the um, the message boards, the forums, because she found that a place which wasn't comfortable. Um, and where people can hide behind um, pseudonyms, people in the community might know who these people are, but if you come into it as a, as you, as you put it, as an outsider, you, you don't really know who those people are. It's quite, that is quite problematic. Right. Well, so, Holly Rubenhold used um, pseudonyms did, as well when she, right, okay, when she yeah. joined, joined both of the message boards. So we, we had no idea who she was. Yeah. Um, well, but, I mean, it's it, not only, yeah. uh, my, I guess my point isn't, it isn't just like, um, not necessarily just engaging with other um, message boards posters, but, but um, also reviewing the material that has been posted before about the subjects that you might choose to tackle. Well, uh, and, I, and I mean, our, our, in our case, for example, I mean, not wishing to just sort of get into detail about our case, but you know that, that it came from it came from Ripperology, it came from forums, it came from the the stuff that had been published by that community. You know, the name of James Hardiman wasn't something that we came up with. Um, Andy had been reading um, the forums. He'd been reading the previous Ripperology stuff, and that's where that came mm -hmm. up. So, in fact, it came from Casebook. It didn't. It wasn't the other way around. So, it was explored on Casebook in the first instance, which which is why he felt it was a credible suspect to to look at because it hadn't been entirely dismissed. Uh, Hardiman hadn't been entirely dismissed. So, in fact, we did engage with that. As our, as our starting point. And I think Andy engaged with that. And I've engaged with Casebook, certainly, if not with the forums as much. Occasionally, I will dip into something because, you know, you'll, you'll find a link, particularly if you Google something, you'll find a link that will take you into that. Um, I, I think that it's an impractical forum for people who are not spending all of their time in that area. So if you're a historian who's interested in the Ripper case, but is not a ripperologist, first and foremost, you are unlikely to engage properly with it. You'll dip in and you'll dip out. 
but that's not necessarily the way that the forums work because again you're only going to get a partial thing there so i think there are better ways probably to communicate or if there aren't if that's the way that suits that community for the last two decades then i'm not suggesting it should change i'm just suggesting that it will be difficult for outsiders in inverted commas to engage effectively with it so i think we might have to find other ways to engage with it which is why i think uh, conversations like this um conferences um seminar series you know that's partly why i wanted to join the white chapel society because i can go along and talk to people one-to-one -one or in groups you know i think those are ways that i might learn from that community and potentially they might learn from me and but most importantly where we'll have a dialogue mm -hmm. i think one of the uh, things about the the, the forums and, and the message boards, uh, which, quite frankly, I, I would say are a bear pit. I, it's a hell of a place to, to enter into. And um, I'm really not sure sometimes when I look at things these days that if all of this had been uh, a, a ripperology back in uh, 1988, I'm not sure I'd have published my book. I don't think I would have dared to. I would have been <laughs> be torn to pieces, or at least frightened of being torn to pieces. Mm. Um, but the the message boards, I, I do have to say that you know I don't spend uh, all my time with, uh, uh, with 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 either Jack the Ripper or uh, on the message boards. I don't read every thread that's on the message boards i will uh do so if necessary on uh, if i'm researching something if some aspect and i uh see that there's something on the message boards that's of interest and relevance then i will read to see what people are saying but generally it i just pick up a thread every now and again that uh, that sparks my interest for some reason very often, it's simply because somebody has said something that I think, oh, I really ought to follow that up for the next edition of the A to Z. And so I'm trying very hard with, with some people to get at the factual basis of some of the, the, the stuff that they're saying. And very often, there isn't a factual basis, and it can often get, get uh, a little unpleasant. Um, so... You know, just you just that there are times if you're being, if things are being directed at you from about five or six different people, and you're doing your very best to answer them, mm. and no sooner have you answered the first, and uh, uh, and and you've got you worked your way down to the third, the first one's replied again, and so you never get. They can be absorbing in that way, uh, and take and take up too much time, but. Generally speaking, I think it's uh, it's it's somewhere that's worthwhile to appear every now and again because you're as uncomfortable as it is. Uh, it's a bit like being a comedian at the Glasgow Empire. It's something that you had to do. <laughs> I would also say, I was just say, I mean, in, in terms of the the writing process in in writing a book, I mean, you know, with the, the nature of this book. Um, Andy was kind of one of the things that was driving Andy, I'm pretty sure in this, because he spoke about it several times, was the need to get something published. 
um, which talked about James Hardiman on the basis that if you didn't, somebody else would publish it and steal your um, steal the thunder. Um, now, I think that within the community of Ripperology, that's probably not so important because they are interested in in this. Uh, they're a small community interested very specifically in the case. But when you look at the wider world of publishing and you're kind of saying, well, we've got this story to tell, you need commercially, you need to go out there and get it out there before somebody else comes up and says, we've got the same story to tell or a better story to tell or, or whatever it is. And I think that that was an uncomfortable for me. Um, I've not really had that before of trying to get something published because you needed to get it published before somebody else got it published. Now, you know, yeah. the, 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 book, the book that I'll publish in May has been, you know, a decade in the making. And quite frankly, it'll be interesting, hopefully to other academics, hopefully to some members of the general public, that I rather suspect as an academic book for outlets, it's going to have a £65 price tag. So um, if, you, if you thought Jack and the Thames Torso Murders was expensive, I don't think you'd be buying this one. Um, but, but I'm not, I'm not, under uh, my pressure to publish it is a pressure of my research cycle at work it's not a pressure that somebody else is going to steal my ideas or andy's in particularly in this case andy's ideas so the, the the if you talk too much about that in the forums i think part of his concern and he should really speak for himself he's not available today still Somebody will steal your ideas and and they'll and they'll rush it out there. Mm-hmm. And but from and a I research think that's... perspective, um, you know, when when my trials book came out, um, it was critiqued by Deborah Arif and others, um, and errors were pointed out. Now maybe those, <clears throat> I know I know that Andy, you're saying did. Mm-hmm. Um, the majority of the research um, on Hardiman for yeah, and, and on the torso murders, I would assume for the um, the book. Um, so possibly, um, given the the rabbit hole that some of the message boards <laughs> and JTR forums are, I mean, just the the inability to locate information um, could have been a stumbling block. But um, when when re- when researchers who do primarily use the message boards to share their research and findings, like Deborah Arif and Gary Barnett, when they when they um, correct an error that was made several years ago in one person's book, and then they see an error, the same error is repeated in your book. That's, yeah. that's where they get frustrated. Um, no, and I, I I understand. I mean, I totally understand that. Jonathan. And so, I mean, and then they they extrapolate from that, and I do yeah. too. Um, that that it's the uh, the failure of the researcher, um, not not. Uh, I mean, on your guys's um, side yeah. to um, even private, me- you know, if if you know, it wouldn't take too long to go onto the message boards and see that someone like Deborah Arif is probably the wor- world's foremost expert on the torso murders. Mm. Um, send her a private message. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand that. That's all it takes. If that's the way you would, yeah, yeah. And so it's that failure to engage um, with our community that that we see time and time and time again to where, as you 
now, as you can probably realize, that just the frustration just builds and builds, you know. Well, and it works the other way, not necessarily with the referology community, but, you know, when I see a television program, you know, a drama, um, or, or I see people writing in the newspapers or people doing, you know, popular history stories and where there are stuff that's so in, so terribly inaccurate about transportation to Australia in the early, ni- early 19th century or about the role of the magistrate or, and stuff like that. And I kind of, you know, you end up screaming at things and thinking, why didn't they ask me? You know, why didn't they ask me? Or why didn't they ask one of my colleagues in the in the field um absolutely um it's very frustrating um and i and i totally appreciate that but you know i don't know who deb zarif is i only know her now because the name has been has been raised i don't know these things because i didn't engage with that process um now that's a fault that's a fault in, in myself but it's not my natural way to go looking for things if i'm sitting in the british library and i'm doing a a book search or an article search for things i'm not finding that kind of information there so if you see what i mean my natural way of researching is not to go through message boards so if we want that situation to change we have to legitimize the message boards um in a way to say that this is actually ripperology is a legitimate um academic pursuit and one of the most important ways in which they share information is via the message boards uh, is via the forums so we do need academics everybody to engage with it mm-hmm. yeah so yeah. you know you've you've got a, a, pro- a problem there is because that's not naturally where someone like me would go looking for information right and it's a catch-22 with ripperologists as well because that creates um in a lot of people's opinion uh, an elitist class yeah. of ripperologists that um you know that and to where putting putting someone who's a suspectologist for instance uh, on a lower level than an you know it's creating a class system within yeah well I mean, also you get you get you get comments you know one of the comments i did see on on the the forums or on i don't know which forums so you know it you know, what, why do we need, who needs academics? Why do we need academics? You know, and that, that to me will set off a, a whole reaction in me, which is, you know, the, the current issue in the, in the UK, certainly of, you know, why do we need experts? You know, Michael Gove said, why do we need experts? We don't need experts. Um, on climate change, on, on, on European affairs, on anything else. We don't need experts. Um, because we, we can work this out for ourselves. And I think that that, you know, I studied, you know, most most people who who have got who are working academic historians will have probably spent eight to ten years of studying to get to the point by which they call themselves a doctor. Um, don't don't ask me to fix your broken leg, but I mean, you know, that doesn't make me perfect, and it doesn't make me an expert in everything, but it gives me a level of expertise, and the reality is, many of the people who've spent the last 10, 15, 20 years on the forums are also experts, even if they don't have a badge that says they they are, but some of the people on there won't be experts, so how do we pick between those, you know, how do I know that Debs, for example, is the foremost expert on the on the torso murders? You know, where am you, I going to find her? Go on. You find that out after after a little while. 
Yeah, um, after a little while, you do. And if I sat down and have a conversation with her, that which I would welcome doing, then you know, I would learn these these things, and I would be able to talk to her about it. But if I have to enter, as you put it, the bare pit of the forums in order to find that stuff out, I think a lot of people won't. Um, that's 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 the issue that it that 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 we have here. There are, can I just step in here because there there were three three at least three points uh, <laughs> came into my mind <clears throat> which I was desperately trying to note down here whilst listening to to, to you talking. Um, one I think is a distinction between uh, as regards the forums is before and after publication. Uh, as I said, there's nothing to stop you going on to forums, as you said yourself, when you Google, uh, yeah. it can quite often take you to one of the forums. There's nothing to stop you going there and reading what people have said. And reading what people say is a one way of finding out who the sensible people are. Um, and, and B, it's a, it's a way of getting hold of the information that they very kindly, uh, shared on the on the forums um that's the beforehand you don't have to g engage with people in a discussion uh before you've published anything after you've published like now um it would be good probably not so much for you but certainly for Grand, because it would be by facing up to the critics and generally speaking i have to say that uh particularly uh here that the critics tend to be fairly kind nobody is go wants to go for the jugular we've we're often portrayed or have been for the last 40 years of being portrayed as going for each other's jugulars all the time but we don't uh sometimes we do when when the jugular is is a particularly <laughs> stupid one <laughs> and, uh, people attack it um so that's the first thing. It's it's there's the before and after forums technique. So if you've written a book, and I think it's a fair thing, uh, unless you're a big name writer, because I've had this discussion with uh, with Patricia Cornell as well, uh, of actually going online and facing facing your critics. Now Patricia can't because she'd have more critics than or more people wanting to talk to her. Uh, then she could would have has time to accommodate, so she very wary about about uh, doing those sort of things. But but uh, lesser literary figures such as myself, um, we can go on and answer questions as best one can, uh, and make yourself available to people. And and generally speaking, I I think that most people naturally do privately message you to. Mm. to say things the the only people who don't are the ones who want to put the boot in because they like to do it publicly well okay fine fair enough i mean if it gives them pleasure uh but that was the first thing the second thing i wanted to say is that the one thing that i'm really supportive about the idea of the academic ripperology uh, side of things is one as you say uh, many academics have studied some aspect, in your case, uh, magistrates, uh, that it would take us 
a considerable amount of time to get your degree of knowledge about the magistrates. And people who have specialized in researching certain aspects of the case, like Gary Barnett, has specialized in, in looking at uh, horse slaughtering, and in particular, Harrison Barber. Uh, these people with this narrow area of interest or speciality are always very valuable for, for us uh, because it expands our knowledge of those particular subjects. So that that's really important, I think. And also, as you know, uh, professional historians have uh, tried and tested historical or techniques of conducting historical research and historical writing from primary and secondary and tertiary sources and through to far more complicated uh, reasonings and arguments. Uh, and those aren't always apparent to people who aren't historians and who haven't gone through uh, the university procedure. Mm. So it would be good for people uh, who aren't like you to, to, to know the techniques and the ways and methods of how you handle your source materials and the difference between or the value of newspapers, oral history, uh, and so on and so forth. I mean, all of that stuff would be, the, the, the sort of techniques of history would be really important as well. And I think uh, a short lecture on, on some of that stuff, even though it would be uh, you know, so obvious to you, and, and possibly obvious to the majority of the audience, but it would still be very worthwhile to talk about things like primary and secondary sources and newspaper sources and, uh, and how we yeah. handle those things. So that that's great. I mean, that that's where I think a real uh, exchange can take place. I agree. I mean, I think con con sorry, yeah, no, go on, yeah. yeah. Sorry, the third point was, uh, and, and is one that's not quite so positive, is <laughs> that um, when you put doctor or professor, or in front of your name, mm. or PhD, or whatever it is, after mm. your name, you carry clout. Mm. People will believe you. I've just literally got a book, I must admit, out of a charity shop about the Ark of the Covenant. It's a, it, it's a history of the Ark of the Covenant. It was, it's published by a good publisher, and the two people who are writing it are professors. Mm -hmm. The that's my only way of judging whether what the book contains is is good solid material or is going to be absolute tosh. I know very little about the Ark of the Covenant, hence the reason for for buying it. It's got nothing to do with Indiana Jones, I know, but uh, that's that's <laughs> the, the point. Now, even though somebody like Halley, for example, uh, doesn't have doctor or professor or anything of that kind on the book what she does have is the clout of being a historian 
uh, in terms of her career background and so forth. Now, there's a responsibility there to be accurate, or as, at least as accurate as, a, as any human being who is a doctor or a professor and is going to persuade people, or that people are going to accept what they yeah. say as being true. I think that's very fair. Um, I think that um, I, I, I think it's something that I hadn't thought about. Um, it's something that you've said before um, mm. to me, and I've thought about it since. I think. Um, I mean, before today. I mean, I don't. You know, I don't often. I don't. I kind of think, why would anybody listen to me? My students often don't. So <laughs> why, why would any of the public listen to me? And I don't think there's a because you have a doctor in front yeah, of you. Yeah, yeah. You're I've, a university. I've, Teacher, yeah, no, no I, I, and I'm, I'm, I am understanding and accepting that. And I, I, it's for example, I think that you know, with Halley's book, it's, um, it's also the publisher. It's the publishing reach. It's the fact that that will then get out into the media. It's the fact that she can network tremendously to publicise what she does. You know, she'll be at the Hay Festival and she can do all these sorts of talks. Uh, also helped, of course, by certain elements in riverology. Um, responding unfavorably to what she did, which then gave her even more publicity. Um, so they end up having a very wide reach. And of course, it's probably a topic that she'll never revisit. Um, so yeah, I accept that popular historians, academic historians um, have a, a degree of legitimacy in the public eye, which means for which they have a responsibility. And I, you know, I take some of your criticisms of, of my writing um to heart on 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 that um but at the same time i suppose you don't necessarily think about that whilst you're doing it and i mean mis mistake mistakes you know sort of are are not made deliberately no, so it's not that I, I don't set out to to do things wrong and i'm quite happy to accept that i make mistakes i make mistakes all the time um so that uh Academics are not infallible. And in fact, you know, the, the book I've just sent to the publisher to Routledge, this book on 18th century murders, you know, in my conclusions, I kind of say, look, you could interpret, I'm sure other people could interpret some of these sources differently to the way that I've interpreted them, you know, but I, you know, I put it out there as a, as, as discussion points. I mean, knowledge for me is not, is not finite or final. Um, you know, with the, with the, the subject of Hardiman, you know, I always, Andy and I have always said, you know, this is a plausible suspect. This isn't the sus, this isn't Jack the Ripper. This isn't the person that we, that we haven't case closed, as, as Patricia Cornwell said. Um, this is um, the beginning or the continuation of a discussion. And I think that's what history should be. It shouldn't be about trying to nail something that's there is no other interpretation there will always be another interpretation of of pretty much anything in history um dead sea scrolls or, or anything else um and academia is a, is a is a pursuit of knowledge in, in in that respect so we're all we're all kind of trying to drive to the same to to enlighten ourselves as we as we move along and i think one of the things that i think that academic history can also do in that conversation even professional non-academic history is to 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 look at context i think context is really important which is why there's such a lot of it in in both london shadows and in jack and the thames torso murders um 
contextual social history because that's also what the ripology community is doing as well um bringing up an understanding of the past you know i've spent a lot of time as as a lecturer at northampton visiting the local history societies and talking to them about you know crime and punishment and policing and stuff like that and each village in northamptonshire has its own history society um and i'm sure that's true of very many other places in the uk and of course and possibly in the states but the they are very focused on what happened in their family in their village in their street and they don't seem sometimes to think about those in context so you're talking about something that happens in the 1780s and i'm kind of going well you've got the french revolution oh we hadn't really thought of that well surely yeah. the french revolution the napoleonic wars you know the the english civil wars the um you know fears about having a queen in the early victorian period you know all that kind of stuff surely that has an impact on small communities they don't live in isolation um so i think context in history is vital to understanding that we are interconnected which goes back to my reasons for doing history in the first place which is to demonstrate that you know there is much more that we have in common than than separates us which which is would probably also be my argument about ripperology we have very much more in common with each other than we have indifference to each other so we should all be in the same room supporting each other in in what we all find mutually interesting rather than necessarily seeking ways to draw differences between us yeah i i think i think so one of the things that interested me and i know has interested a number of other people uh is that we talk about <coughs> uh the streets where uh, either the murders took place or or uh, where people lived and you have the Flower and Dean Street and Thrall Street and so on and uh, is where the names came from to begin with but if you go back to when that whole area was fields and uh, military troops did uh, archery practice mm -hmm. on part of it and other areas were uh, for the stretching of uh, of animal skins, hence you get places called Tenter Street and Tenter Ground. You go back into the history, you can actually find out who built those houses mm. <coughs> that were crumbling wrecks. And, uh, you know, they, even the, the, the history going back to the, the Priory and how Spitalfields got its name, being the fields that surrounded the hospital. I mean, it's all pretty obvious stuff when you know. Uh, but all of that is is equally as interesting once you've got beyond who was Jack the Ripper, once the, once you perhaps understand that the the mystery will never be solved. Which I also accept. <laughs> Well, yeah. uh, Andy, not so much, but yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I just, uh, but I, I, I would like uh, Andy to to come on the podcast and and uh, uh, and let us talk to him about his research yeah. and his theorizing because it's yeah. uh, it's you know he's he was the uh, uh, the guiding hand in that respect, and so it's a little unfair to hold you up to criticism for something uh, I, I mean I, you know you, 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 
it, for me it's it, it was really interesting to do it because intellectually it's interesting to to look at how you might approach something like this um mm. and i think that you know there are lots of reasons for doing it um and i don't regret doing it um yeah there are things i would have done differently um obviously like sending you a full draft pool um <laughs> would have been different now but um yeah it, 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 i think that you 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 should be learning from every experience in life um and my adventures in ripperology have taught me quite a lot but what they haven't done is made me think oh, i'm not going anywhere near that lot again and um, what they've actually done is say i want to be clo- more closely linked to this lot to that lot to your lot um to ripperology so that we can explore some of these things together i think that's you mm. know that's what i'm hoping will come out of this i think um, ripperologists are an amazingly diverse group yeah. of people with with a wide range of, of interest well i think we're uh, about at the end i want to thank you to dr drew gray we really appreciate you taking the time to discuss some of these issues in ripperology and academia and the possibility of the two of them learning how to play well together and again his and andrew wise's book is called jack and the thames torso murders a new ripper and again drew thank you for coming on the show thank you jonathan thank you paul and i would just if i can just add at this point that um you know early discussions with um the east end conference people with adam and adam wood and and with um neil bell um led me to believe that in 2021 we could get uh, a proper big academic ripperology conference together probably in northampton possibly in london and I'm, i really would be great if you two guys could be involved in that in some way i would love to as indeed would i brilliant All right. Thanks again.